Lord, we thank you for John and ask that you will empower him now as he speaks to us, that we will be open to his message and its challenge for our lives. Amen. Amen. When I saw my photo at the beginning, it was a real inspiration to keep going to the gym. They say when you look like your passport photo, it's time for a holiday. When I look like that, I think it's probably time for the morgue. Um, Just imagine this. That I get back from church just after this service and I've been broken into. For those of you who have been to my house, you'd wonder, how would you know you've been broken into? But the doors are jarred, the lock's broken. And even worse than that, the perpetrator's still in the house. And I've been going to the gym, so I quite fancy myself uh, in this confrontation. And I guess I've got um, four options. I guess the first is, knowing I keep my cricket bat in the cupboard just by the door, that I get it out and set about the man uh, and show what all the weight training in Virgin Active has done to my bodily strength. I would show him vengeance. My first option. My second option is that I would get my phone out of my pocket and I would dial 999 and say, Dear Police Scotland, probably be a bit more hasty than that, um, please could you send someone round? I'm in the middle of being burgled. And that would be justice, getting what they deserve. Thirdly, perhaps I trap them in the kitchen and I say, you know, you really shouldn't be doing this. This is my house, not yours. This is my things, not yours. Um, please leave and we'll say no more about it. That would be mercy. The perpetrator wouldn't get what he did deserve. But what if I did this? I said, excuse me, Mr. Perpetrator, his um, name actually led to this um, crime. And uh, I said, do you know, I can see you're under a pretty difficult, you're having a pretty difficult time. Why don't you just sit on the sofa and I'll have a quick tidy up. And then we'll share my M&S microwave meal for one. And uh, we'll watch the football together. uh, And then perhaps we'll have an afternoon snooze, which is really what Sunday afternoon's for. Uh, And then perhaps you could come back tomorrow and we'll have breakfast. And do you know, I've got a spare room. Why didn't you just move in? And uh, perhaps we can hang out together. That would be grace. That he would get something that he absolutely doesn't deserve. What we looked at at the opening video, unmerited favour. God's unmerited kindness towards us that the perpetrator did nothing to deserve it and yet you pour out grace into his life. As um, we come and land in Exodus 3 and 4 today, the absolute passage hinges on this kind of grace, on the fact that God has dealt far more kindly with Moses than he deserves. That God has reached out to Moses and done for Moses what he doesn't deserve. The big headline of these passages is this. God steps forward in grace. God steps forward in grace. God repeatedly deals more kindly with Moses and his people than any of them deserve. And this is very different to people's conception of God. That if people think about God at all, he's some kind of headmaster. 
like an evil version of Rosemary, who sits in the sky and waits for us to trip up so that then he can call us up and give us detention and punish us. That he's some kind of cosmic scorekeeper that we're trying to keep the good stuff outweighing the bad. But what we see revealed in this passage is that he's kind. And he's gracious. And he's repeatedly stepping forward towards us, treating us far more kindly than we deserve. So if you've got a Bible, please turn with me um, to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. If you're not used to dealing with the Bible, then the big numbers, they're the chapters. So you're looking for big number 3. And we're going to start reading in verse 1, which is a little number 1. You might need your reading glasses for... And Moses' life has been one of two halves. When we dip into Exodus 3, he's about 80 years old. Is anyone here 80? Exactly 80. Close to 80. Gordon and Finlay. About their kind of age. And uh, it's been a life of two halves. 40 years spent in Egypt. 40 years in Midian. 40 years as the son of a pharaoh. 40 years looking after some sheep. And we meet Moses, and the one thing you'd say about his life is that it's an epic fail. It's an epic fail. He's a failed prince, a murdering fugitive, a lowly shepherd. He has a broken spirit, and he's in the back of beyond, the Scottish equivalent of Alawa. And you can imagine that he's saying to himself, every day, if only... If only I hadn't killed that Egyptian. If only I hadn't covered it up. If only I hadn't had ideas above my station, then it might have been really different. Forty years looking after sheep. No way back. Alienated from God. Alienated from God's people, which is always the result of sin. Alienation from God. Alienation from God's people. Epic fail. Living in the light of what might have been. Nothing he can do. Alone in the wilderness with nothing but sheep to keep him company. We're at Moses' lowest moment. Just when he's thinking this is all there is, God initiates God steps forward towards Moses in grace. God steps forward towards him in the desert. So let's read the first six verses together. There's a sermon outline which you might find helpful. It says this, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, Moses, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid. I guess it's one of, probably one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament. And I think what we see is that God steps forward towards Moses and God shows his nature. God shows his nature, what he's like to Moses. I mean, here's the first thing. He reveals himself as a bush. I mean, unless you're dead, keen and green fingered, bushes are just quite normal. God could have revealed himself as anything. He could have revealed himself as the most resplendent magisterial figure that Moses could ever dream of. And yet he comes as a humble bush. A bush, admittedly, that's on fire, which is always the Old Testament symbol that God is present. But a bush is pretty humble for the God who created absolutely everything in all the world, including the humble shrub. The second thing we see is that God reveals himself as holy. He says to Moses, don't come any closer because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Not because this little um, backwater area of round Horeb was particularly um, sacred. It was because God was present. And therefore, this ground is holy ground. As God's absolute perfection um, seeps into the very surrounding area. Then we see that God reveals himself as faithful. Look at how he introduces himself. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is saying, I've been faithful to all your descent, all your ancestors. I've been faithful to all the patriarchs. I am the God who's been here, who hasn't moved. And then we see also that he's a God who is personal. Moses walks up to the bush and the bush calls him by name. Moses, Moses. Moses was in a place where he thought everyone had forgotten about him. Where nobody cared. Where nobody was sending him a Christmas card. And he walks up to the bush and the bush says, Moses, Moses. That God knew who Moses was. God initiated and stepped forward towards Moses all in grace. That Moses couldn't find his way back to God and God's people, but God steps forward in grace to find Moses. Now, I don't know what you look for in prospective friends. I don't know what you're kind of looking for, for people that you want to hang out with. But if I met someone who was humble, who was not full of themselves, who was leading leading a godly life, somebody who was faithful, and somebody who was personal who knew me, I'd want to be their friend. This is the God who meets Moses in the burning bush and says, Moses, Moses, I'm here and I've got a job for you. Not because you deserve it but because I'm that gracious. Then God reveals, shares his plan with Moses. The next three verses. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am convinced about their suffering. 
So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. I don't know as you read that, but it seems a little bit repetitive, doesn't it? It seems that God is almost saying the same thing twice. Look at verse 7 and look at verse 9. There's not a great deal of difference there. That God reveals his plan, that he's come down to um, give his people an inheritance seen the misery he's heard them crying he's concerned about them and he says it twice in verse 7 and verse 9 but verses 8 and 10 are quite different in verse 8 God says I have come down to rescue my people and in verse 10 God says to Moses I'm sending you to bring my people out that's a cosmic shift isn't it But God is so gracious that he could swat the Pharaoh like that and lead the people free. But his grace is so sufficient that he can include Moses in his sovereign plan to rescue his people. Moses is in the wilderness with no way back and God steps forward to him in grace and reveals his nature. He then steps forward to him and says, I've got a job for you. I've got a job for you. God steps forward. You think you've messed up here this morning? One too often, one too many black marks on your record. You think there's no way back. Great encouragement from the first 10 verses of Exodus 3 is there's always a way back because God is always the God who steps forward. It says, I know everything that's gone before. I know all the mistakes and the mess-ups. I know all of the problems and the failings. And I love you anyway. And I'm stepping forward towards you to use you. To welcome you. To equip you for the work that I have. Well, then we get to the real meat of the story. You think that this is going to be the best day of Moses' life. New purpose, a second chance. A life-changing mission to be the rescuer of God's people. But Moses is thinking to himself, where did I put my shoes? Because I want to run away. We see, don't we, that God, Moses has a lot of doubts. If you go to the cinema, perhaps you grew up with Disney and the Prince of Egypt. Moses has a really impressive leader's jaw. It's like beautiful. Or if you're a bit older and you saw the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston playing Moses. I mean, cheekbones you could cut yourself on. If you've been to see, or unfortunately been to see, Exodus, Gods and Kings, Christian Bale, impressive. And the opinion we have so readily is that Moses was a born leader. And I think what we see here is that he wasn't. He was a little bit scared. God's grace equipped Moses for the work to do. He makes five massive excuses. Look at chapter 3, verse 11 with me. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to go. I'm a nobody. I'm a lowly shepherd. 
Then look at with me at verse 3, chapter 3, verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Moses' second excuse, I don't know enough. I don't know enough. They're going to find me out. They're going to ask me questions that I don't know the answer to. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Moses says, I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to turn up with this great message and people say, I don't want to hear. Get out of here, you're just insane. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. Moses uses his most polite English. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech. He simply says, I can't do it. I can't do it. And then chapter 4, verse 13. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Fifth excuse he makes. I don't want to. Send someone else instead. Five massive excuses. I'm not worthy. I don't know enough. I don't want to be rejected. I can't do it. I don't want to send someone else. Moses steps back. And we're going to see that God steps forward in grace towards him. I don't know. Moses sounds a lot like me most of the time. Those excuses don't particularly sound alien. I may have used most of them most days for different things that God has asked me to do. And at the very centre, isn't it, the fear of man? Moses is full of himself. They all start, I, still looking to himself, can't see beyond his own ability and his own destiny. Moses steps back and God steps forward. And he reminds him of six massive things. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. And God said, I will be with you. I will be with you. Moses says, who am I that I should go? And God doesn't answer. God simply says, I'll be with you. You're in my corner. And I'm the sovereign God. In me is everything that you need. As you go to Pharaoh, it is not you going to Pharaoh, it is me going to Pharaoh, and I make Pharaoh look like an ant. I'm with you. Then look at the second half of the verse. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. That's the kind of mission I want to go on. One where God says, not if you manage it, or not perhaps you'll manage it. He says, when, when you've done it, you'll worship me on this mountain. There's a real promise in that. Moses, I've heard your excuses. This is what I'm going to do, says God. I'm going to promise you're on the winning team. Real assurance. Verse 13, uh, chapter 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. God reminds Moses and reveals a bit more of his person. He says, I am who I am. My name is I will be what I will be. This is a name that sums up everything we need to know about God. It is the absolute meanness of God. It is the foundation of everything. It is the very bedrock of reality that God says, I'm me. Everyone else finds their place in this world depending on where I am. But I'm me. There's no one like me. I'm utterly distinct. I'm eternally sufficient. I'm absolutely immutable. I will not change. I created everything. I am me. I am who I am. There's these four letters that are called the Tetragrammaton. Y-H-W-H, so we sometimes translate Jehovah, we sometimes use the word Yahweh, it's when the word Lord is big in your Bible, that's who we're talking about. The God who is who he is, who was what he was, and who always be what he will be. The God who is absolutely everything we need, who is the very centre, the very reason, the soul and circumference of everything that it means to be anything. God says, I am who I am. He then tells Moses a little bit more of his plan. In verses 18 to 20, he starts to map out a bit more what it's going to look like. That you're going to go to the elders and they're going to listen. And then you're going to have them and you're going to go to Egypt. And they're going to listen. And I'm going to win. And God's people, the Israelites who have been in slavery, they're going to be free. And they're going to come to this place and they're going to worship me. God reminds Moses of his plan. Then I love this bit. This is probably the most dramatic bit of the Prince of Egypt for me. Verses 2 to 9. Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This said the Lord is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hands inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. God reminds Moses of his power and he gives them these three examples of his power. The staff that goes to a snake, the hand that becomes leprous and then not, and then the blood of the water of the Nile becoming like blood. Now this isn't God showing off his party tricks. These are very deliberate miracles. The first one of Moses having control over the snake. The actual snake is a cobra and the cobra is... The symbol of the Pharaoh. 
Well, what a great example of God's power over the most powerful man in Egypt. That Moses can put him down and pick him up whenever he wants. Leprosy was absolutely ravaging Egypt at this time. Huge leper colonies outside the big city. And Moses says, your Pharaoh, he can't deal with leprosy. Look at me. Leprosy, no leprosy, leprosy, no leprosy, leprosy, no leprosy. But he did that on the walk all the way to Egypt. And then this idea of the Nile and the water turning to blood. The Nile is synonymous with at least three of the biggest Egyptian gods. Moses says, I can do with the Nile whatever you want. Because your gods are absolutely nothing. This is the bit that struck me all week. God's perseverance. Verse 13, Moses says, pardon your servant, please send someone else. And God gets angry because Moses will de- God will deal with Moses' failings. But he has no time for his servant taking the swerve. And do you see how God has been so gracious to Moses because he's already planned ahead? Your brother Aaron, he can speak well. You'll speak to him and he'll do what he says. Then he says he's already on his way in verse 14. I'm so sovereign, I knew how this conversation was going to go down and your brother Aaron is already making tracks to intercept you on the way to Egypt. God perseveres. Moses is so weak and feeble with his five excuses and God says, I can overcome all of it. I want to give you such a big view of me that you see nothing of yourself and have real confidence as you go to do this work. What's the way to deal with the fear of man that Moses has? Have a big view of God. I can't do it. God can. I'm not able, but God is sufficient. This is how gracious God is in dealing with his servant. God, Moses is stepping back and God is continually stepping forward towards Moses in his grace. Well, let's just finish up, shall we? Chapter 4, verse 18. It's all going so well, but it's about to take a surprising turn. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Pharaoh took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and also about the signs he had commanded him to perform. 
Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had been their misery, they bowed down and had seen their misery. They bowed down and worshipped. Verse 24 is a real surprising turn. God has gone to such great lengths to get Moses ready. And then in verse 24, God says, God appears because he wants to kill Moses. I've been wrestling with this all week. Why does God want to kill Moses? I think there's three things that show Moses has lingering unbelief. Despite the fact that God has been so gracious, Moses still doubts. Here's the first. Look what he says to Jethro. Let me return to my, peop- to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. He's saying this is a bit of a wild goose chase. I don't really trust that there's anyone worth saving. Secondly, he takes his wife and sons. I don't know if trying to do diplomacy with the greatest man, with the most powerful man there is in Egypt, is particularly a thing for wife and sons. Perhaps it indicates that Moses thinks he's just going to go back to Egypt and settle with Zipporah and Gershi. Perhaps that's what it is. But we see later on in the story that Moses will send Zipporah and her sons away because it's too dangerous. And yet he decides to take her on a donkey, that really quick mode of transport because he's so desperate to get there. Lingering unbelief. And then he's failed to prepare properly. That even his own son does not bear the sign of circumcision to show that he's in a relationship with God. It's very kind of half-hearted and therefore God intercedes and says, let's sort this out before we go any further. Do we see that even in this, God is stepping forward in grace to reveal Moses' lingering unbelief so they can sort it out before they get to Egypt? And I think the best response we get from anyone is in verse 31. That Moses and Aaron come to the elders and they gather them. And they hear and they believe and they see and they're amazed and they're full of hope. And how do they respond? They bow down. That symbol of submitting. Of saying, God, you're in control and I'm not. And then they worshipped him. Because of his grace towards them. So we come into land with this. That God is stepping forward towards each of us in grace. As he did Moses. We see that the wrath of God is averted through the shedding of blood. As Zipporah performs this emergency surgery on Zipporah. And yet that points even more to wrath averted from a holy God through the shedding of blood of his son. And therefore God has ultimately stepped forward in grace towards us in the person of his son. That God has ultimately revealed what he's like in the Lord Jesus in ultra high definition. He's shown us exactly what he's like. He's not only revealed his plan To us, he's fulfilled his plan for us in the Lord Jesus. He sent his son down to rescue his people and he did it all by himself. Meaning that all we can do is live 
in grace. He saves us completely. So he can stop making excuses. And he sends us on mission to make much of him all by his grace. God is stepping forward towards each of us this morning in his grace. To reveal more of himself. To give us a bigger view of who he is and what he's done in the Lord Jesus. So that we might, send out, we might be sent out with real confidence in him. God is saying, I'm stepping forward towards each of you. What does this look like? Well, maybe it's this, that you feel you've made a mess, a catastrophic mess of life. God this morning says, I've stepped forward towards you in grace. I've come to sure shrink that gap and bring you back. Perhaps you've got real fear of man and those excuses you make all the time. Well, let's get a really big view of God and see that his grace is sufficient number three perhaps there's real lingering unbelief God's told you to do something and yet you hold back because you don't really trust him perhaps today is the day where as he steps forward towards you in grace you step forward towards him and say yes let's do this not because I can but because you're able But perhaps you're not a Christian here today and all this is saying very interesting but has absolutely nothing to do with you. Well, let me say this, that God is real and that he's stepping forward towards you in the person of his son so that you might know him and love him and serve him forever. And he's done everything possible. He's shown you what he's like in the person of his son. He says, my son is the exact representation of who I am. So in getting to know him, you see who I am. That I am humble and faithful. That I am holy and I'm personal and I'm calling each of you by name. And he's saying, I've got a purpose and a plan for your life as I did for Moses. So get on board. Trust my grace. Love my son. Do what the Israelites did. Bow down and worship him. Why don't we just have a minute's silence and then I'll pray. Father God, thank you that you're a God who wants to be known. Father, I pray that you would know us this morning, that you would love us this morning, that you would reveal yourself more to us this morning. Father, that you would pursue us this morning in your grace. And you would use us this week all by your grace to make much of your son. Father, come and dominate all of our lives. Father, may we stop making excuses. May we stop doubting your sufficiency. But Lord, may all of our lives be lived bowing before you. And worshipping you with everything you've given us. Father, bless us richly, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.